Hey everybody, this is Devin Boker, and you are listening to The Wildlife, a show that tells nature's untold stories and wild secrets. Just me today, kind of like last week, if you listened last week. And if you did listen last week, you know that that was a revisiting one of our favorite episodes, The Metamorphosis Metaphor, where we looked at, well, the process of metamorphosis and how people use it as a metaphor and how it could actually be greatly improved upon if you only understand the true, real biology of what's going on. This week, we're, we're bringing something back that we had started a while ago um, and, and wanted to make a return to, Citizen Science Friday, hashtag SitSciFry. It's our opportunity and, and your opportunity to, to learn about a way that everyday citizens, regular old folk, not science people, not people who went and got a master's or a PhD, well, here's the thing, everyone's a science person. And that's what citizen science is all about, is that everybody can participate. So we reached out to uh, Katie Lynn Bunny at the Monarch Joint Venture to learn about how everyday people can get involved in the conservation and research of monarchs at really every stage of their life, whether it's egg, larvae, uh, when they're in their chrysalis, as an adult, as adults migrating across entire countries. There's literally something for, for virtually someone of, of all ages to do at every single stage of a monarch's life. Sometimes not even directly dealing with a monarch, sometimes it's just about their food, like milkweed. Or, or other native poll pollinator plants. So anything you learn about today, any opportunities, there are going to be uh, links, especially the link to the monarchjointadventure.org website in the episode notes. Um, but uh, uh, the other thing I wanted to add before we get to it is um, you're not going to hear a whole lot from me. Well, I mean current me, like this me at this moment who's talking right now because um, in these episodes, we largely like to just kind of play the raw conversation. So I will only pop up or interject a couple of times. Um, this is also a bit shorter of an episode compared to our normal. So, uh, yeah. Hope you enjoy. Um, so my name's Katie Lynn Bunny. I'm the education coordinator with the Monarch Joint Venture. And the Monarch Joint Venture is a 501c3 nonprofit. While they are based in the Twin Cities, they have a national audience international really and they work with 85 partners and we do that through habitat science and research and education um, but the the real meat of our organization is our partnership so we rely on our partners to do um, a lot of the work but we do the the work of connecting partners to the resources they need and connecting people to the resources that we and our partners have so we're kind of the go-to for all things monarch and we we think of ourselves as the the clearinghouse for all monarch-related information in the United States. So our website is pretty dense, but it's got a lot of information on what you need for monarch habitat, the sorts of things that you should be thinking about, how to get involved in monarch conservation, and then, of course, all of our partners and, and what they do as well. And they're still young. Well, kind of. And we're, we, we've only been a nonprofit for about a year now. Well, less than a year. It'll be a year in May. Um, but we've been on an organization for about 10 years. We started at the University wow. of Minnesota as a university program. So we left the university in 2019 to become a nonprofit. So we're kind of in this unique position of having 
this vast audience and, and, you know, 10 years of experience and work, uh, but only one year as a nonprofit. So, um, we're a, a very old new nonprofit. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way of putting it. So yeah. I, I suppose that that actually probably is quite beneficial for a lot of different reasons, but mm-hmm. I can see how, you know, building that foundation for a decade, um, and then being able to branch off and, and use that previous decade to, um, you know, be able to expand it and bring in and bring in more faces and, yep. and thoughts and things. That's, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. The university yeah. was a really great kind of incubation period for us. And now we've launched off onto our own flight pattern. And, um, I guess you could say they metamorphosed. Our things are going really well. So good. Good. Yeah. So as far as our partnership goes, it's really very broad. We have, like I said, 88 partners, that, and that number is growing every every year. Um, but those partners range from federal agencies all the way down to small volunteer-run organizations and nonprofits. And we've got the whole gamut. We've got, like I said, federal partners. We've got uh, botanical gardens, nature centers, uh, small state coalitions, departments of transportation, DNRs, uh, zoos, you know, pretty much yeah. any type of organization. Um, you know, we, we don't discriminate as far as, as um, the type of organization goes, as long as their work is um, devoted towards, or part of their work is devoted towards um, conserving the monarch butterfly and, the, and their migration. Sure, um, sure. As far as what we do, it's a lot. <laughs> you know, we're a small yeah. staff, so we're limited in what we're able to do. And and as a nonprofit, also limited by, you know, both physical and financial ca- capacity. Um, but we, like I mentioned earlier, we operate kind of in these four areas. And I can I can walk you through each of them. Um, the first sure. being science. You know, everything that we do is based in science. So we, we kind of take that to heart to make sure that we're giving our partners and, and the public the most up-to-date current information. Um, yeah. That said, you know, science is... Science is science. Not everybody agrees on the same thing. So we kind of walk that line between, you know, what the science is saying and and, and what different scientists say about what that science is saying. So yeah. <laughs> our job is as, uh, as a nonprofit, as, as the Monarch Joint Venture, is to help interpret those pieces so that the public understands what's going on. Sure. Um, Within the realm of science, we're also involved in a couple of initiatives. The Monarch Conservation Science Partnership is a trinational um, effort to work on learning more about the monarch butterfly. So it's a partnership of, you know, academia, um, federal agencies, state agencies, things like that, all, you know, trying to solve this mystery of this little tiny insect and, and how it, you know, what makes it tick and how it works in in the in nature and and um the grand scheme of of the ecosystems of north america um yeah so we are uh, canada the u.s and mexico Mexico, yep canada the u.s canada the u.s and mexico um you know we've all got our our own research efforts going on and and being a part of the monarch conservation science partnership lets us you know have our our hand on uh, or I guess our ear on the ground as far as what's the newest information in, in monarch research. So we are part of that. Um, and that committee, that partnership informs a lot of what we do, the the research that comes out of um, 
out of the work there. We are also involved in a program called the Integrated Monarch Monitoring Program, which is mm -hmm. a, a, a monitoring program for monarch butterfly and their habitat. So it's pretty involved. It's not for everybody, but um, we ask volunteers to go out and look at monarch habitat and and or any habitat to see if it's good habitat for monarchs. We have them go out to monarch habitat to monitor for different stages of the monarch life cycle, especially eggs and larvae, and then also uh, a, a butterfly count. And then there's also a milkweed survey in that as well. So looking at both nectaring and host plants um, so that we can get a, a big picture of, of what habitat looks like on the landscape in North America for monarch butterflies. Sure. And then we're also involved in a photo recognition drone flying initiative with oh, Centera. Wow. Yeah. So Centera is an organization that does, you know, a lot of this drone stuff, but they um, were working with them and the U.S. Geological Survey on this. And, and it's using drones to fly over uh, what could be potential monarch habitat and then using taking pictures or video of, of that mm -hmm. habitat and using photo recognition software to identify common milkweed on the landscape. So right now we're just looking at common milkweed because it's um, it's easy to spot, it's easy to teach software how to identify it. Sure. Uh, and But with the hope that once we get uh, at least one more field season under our belt with that, we'll be able to um, use that to see what habitat is suitable for monarchs and then eventually move on to other types of milkweed. So. Okay, so that's those awesome. Are three main things with science. <laughs> sure. No, that's, um, and that's many really of our cool. partners focus specifically on the science. You know, they're, um, they're academic institutions or, or other organizations that focus on science research um, for monarch butterflies. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say so on that, um, the, the middle bit that you mentioned where, where people can. Um, you know, they said is involved, but in, in looking for eggs and the different stages of larvae and um, presence of milkweed. So why why are those three things um, important for the work of monarch conservation? Good question. So we need to know where monarch habitat is and where it's not. And we need to know if it's not there, if it would be suitable to improve that for monarch habitat. So the biggest, the biggest concern with monarch conservation right now is the loss of habitat. That's what's driving sure. the decline in, in their numbers, both in the east and the west. So by knowing where the habitat is and where it isn't, we can then focus our efforts on those areas, on either improving them or, you know, creating them. So we can, you know, we, we can get a snapshot of where monarchs are. And this isn't the only program like this. I'll talk about another one a little bit later, but sure. um, by having people go out and telling us where monarchs are and where they're not, absence data are still important. Um, we can add to that big picture, you know, in, in the sky, I guess, <laughs> that big yeah. picture of where monarchs are and learn more about how to help them. <laughs> so generally speaking, monarchs are around in the U.S. and Canada in mm -hmm. the summertime. So sure. we've got monarchs, and I'll, from the perspective of Minnesota, I will, I'll speak from because that's where I live and where I work. Yeah. Um, so here in Minnesota, we have monarchs from 
the end of May to early June um, is when they return. And then they leave Minnesota in uh, late August, September, September. Mm -hmm. Um, So we only have them for a few short months and they return, lay their eggs and then they die. And then those eggs grow up and we see a, a couple of peaks of egg laying in the summertime here in Minnesota. The monarchs that hatch from um, eggs in August are migratory. They live seven to nine months, which is seven to nine times longer than the monarchs that we see here in the beginning of the summer. So those are the ones that fly all the way to Mexico and spend the winter there. They overwinter in Mexico in Oyamel fir trees, which is a type of fir tree that's uh, native to the mountains of central Mexico. It offers protection from the elements, protection from wind, uh, water or snow, temperature, things like that. And they all kind of cluster together in these really dense clumps. Starting right around now, actually, I just got word from um, from somebody that the, there are reports of monarchs being sighted outside of the sanctuaries in Mexico. Oh, well, that's exciting. So, yeah, spring is coming. <laughs> um <laughs> So monarchs are starting to make their way north. It's very early in the migration. By far, most of the monarchs are still in Mexico. But usually around the end of February to beginning of March is when they start leaving the overwintering grounds, start leaving the colonies of Mexico. Um, They are seeking nectar sources along the way. They'll start to breed very soon here and then lay eggs as they fly north again into the United States. Most of their eggs end up in Texas and other surrounding states. Uh, and then once those eggs are laid, they finally reach the end of their life. And those adults that spent the winter in Mexico die. But mm-hmm. their offspring, the eggs that they've laid along the way, grow up to continue the migration north. So it's actually the offspring of the monarchs that were in Mexico that we start seeing again in the spring here in the Midwest. So overall, it's four or five, sometimes even six generations for a full annual cycle of the monarch migration. But here in the Midwest, we see two to three generations every summer. Wow. That's really cool. I would have never thought it would be more than just one generation. Mm -hmm. And they can still complete that cycle. It's one of the most interesting things about monarch butterflies because in most individuals, uh, you know, when you think about bird migration, it's the same individuals year after year making the migrations north and south. But in monarchs, right. it's just one group of monarchs that fly south, that fly south and then north again in the spring, and they don't even make the full, you know, geographic migration. Um, so it's it's really interesting to think that every single monarch that has been to Mexico has never been there before and they'll never be there again. That's and yet they super find weird. <laughs> and that they find the same space, the same mountaintops year after year without fail. So it's truly one of the most spectacular insect migrations in the world. It's not the longest. <laughs> there is mm-hmm. a dragonfly that flies further, but it's definitely the only thing of its kind. Um, did I see? Did I see something recently? Um, and this is one of those. It's it's a hot button topic debate that I see all the time. I'm in a lot of the uh, you know naturalist Facebook groups and things, mm-hmm. and those can get kind of contentious sometimes. It's yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, about and and this is one that always comes up is raising monarchs. Should you raise monarchs? Should you just leave them be? Should you only raise monarchs under certain conditions? And then I had seen last year there was something that came out and I'm blanking on the details, um, but something about how reared monarchs had decreased 
success in navigation yes, or something like that. I know that. exactly the study you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> so, and I can send you resources on these things too, like the actual sure. uh, uh, papers yeah. and some responses for it. But um, so that paper that came out, it was really interesting. It got a lot of people talking. Um, regardless of, you know, what, what that paper was saying, I mean, and not, not necessarily regardless, but our messaging around whether or not you should raise monarchs has, is, is the same as it was before that paper came out. It hasn't changed based on those results. Um, that's that particular study, um, had a very small sample size and the conditions that they were raising the monarchs in while fall like were not a perfect imitation. They had sure. a continuous day length and night length, which is not oh. fall like. You know, when you oh. think to what what things are like here in August and September, our day yeah. length is decreasing by quite a bit every day. And we yeah. know and that day length is cue. yeah. We, and we know already from previous research that day length is a a huge factor in whether and you know triggering that migration response in monarchs, as is temperature. Um, and so they were kept at a constant temperature, oh. which again can be fall like, but not sustained. So yeah. when you think about what late August and early September are like in the Midwest, it's usually pretty warm still during the day, but it can get quite chilly at night. Um, so yeah. those two cues together are extremely important in triggering that migration response. So if monarchs are not receiving those cues, it's possible that they won't be able to orient themselves to fly south. Um, so if you're raising monarchs, and this is where our, our other message comes in, if you're going to be raising monarchs, we emphasize doing it for educational purposes or for participating in citizen or community science. So sure. if you're if you're raising monarchs, make it count. You know, don't just do it because yeah. you want to help the population. Raising hundreds or thousands of monarchs actually would not be helping the population, and it's not necessarily a practice that we recommend. Um, you know, you can raise all the monarchs you want, but if the habitat isn't there to support them, it's kind of wasted effort. Um, but we raise monarchs ourselves for education purposes. We use them in sure. our workshops and our outreach events to teach people about monarchs and the natural world. But we're also recording what happens with those monarchs for a citizen science program called the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project. Sure. And okay. the, the website for that is mlmp.org. And that's another one similar to the one I described earlier where anybody can participate in it. You just need milkweed. You go out once a week and count how many monarchs are on your milkweed um, and let us know what you find. One of the activities, though, is raising monarchs from, we recommend fourth or fifth instars, which are the fat caterpillars that most people recognize yeah. as monarchs, and uh, bringing them inside and raising them in individual containers and then telling us what happens. Is it a monarch that comes out? Does it die of an unexpected cause? Or occasionally... Uh, you'll get something called a tachinid fly, which is a parasite, a parasitoid, I should say, of monarchs. They lay their eggs on or in the monarch caterpillar, and then those fly, those fly larvae, the maggots, are inside the monarch, growing and developing at the same time as the monarch oh, larva. Wow. And then instead of a pupa at the end of you know two weeks of having your monarch caterpillar or a few days or however long it is since you collected it, um, rather than a pupa, you get some fly maggots, which is really gross, but also really <laughs> super interesting. <laughs> it is. It is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, oh. going back to our, our 
rearing message, you know, if you're, if, if you're going to be raising them, make sure something is benefiting from it other than what you think is helping the monarch population. So by participating in a citizen science monitoring program like that, you know, there's, there's other ones too. There's Project Monarch Health, which looks at other monarch diseases, um, tagging with Monarch Watch or a monarch program out in the West. Um, those are all programs that are helping us learn more about monarchs. And then, you know, raising just a few for educational purposes, you know, with your kids or your neighbors or your classroom or, you know, I know a lot of libraries that do it and nature centers that do it. Um, you know, making those connections with kids when they're young is really what creates conservation minded adults in the future. Right. So I say, you know, I, I do it with my kid, with my kid in the kitchen every summer. Yeah. We raise a few monarchs every year and he loves it. And he goes and tells all of his friends about the monarch life cycle and what they do and what they eat. So I know that he's already wanting to share that with people and that's creating a love of nature and the environment that will stay with kids as they grow in, into, you know, hopefully science literate and conservation minded adults. No, that's it. And there's something about butterflies that just draws people in. We did a, mm -hmm. uh, we did an episode, gosh, almost, almost two years ago at this point i'm realizing that now our first episodes yeah it was forever ago about uh the metamorphosis metaphor i can't remember what we called it but it was something about uh the whole process of metamorphosis and how people are drawn to it and what's actually going on and stuff and uh um i think even more information has come out since then but there is something about butterflies that really draws people in and if yeah. if it can be a uh, gateway to a life of uh, love for wildlife and conservation, then so <laughs> yep. be it. Yeah, um, well, and, and that's that's the thing about monarch butterflies. They're so charismatic and people love them. And that's why, that's really part of why the Monarch Joint Venture formed is because people are rallying behind this little insect that, um, you know, everybody has a story for. Everybody I talk to mm -hmm. at an event has a story about how they raised monarchs as a kid or how they used to see monarchs roosting in their in their yards in the fall or something like that. So if we can get behind the, you know, get people behind their desire to raise or uh, help monarchs and create habitat and then creating that habitat is also helping other native pollinators and birds and bats and, you know, butterflies and everything else that shares habitat with monarchs you know, then, then we're making a difference. So, so on that, on that, uh, note of habitat loss. So is that the, is that the largest thing that's driving, uh, uh declines in populations and, and what, what is in turn driving that popular, not population loss, but that habitat loss? Yeah. So habitat loss is by far the biggest thing that's, um, affecting the monarch population. We're still losing acres and acres, thousands of acres of habitat every year. Um, and it's really driven by development and, um, agriculture and things like that. And, and, you know, that's part of being a society. We grow and we change, we, we affect our environment around us, but right. there are ways to combat that. There are ways to do that with the least impact. And, and, you know, obviously we're never going to go back to the, huge wide open prairies that our country was covered in before sure. Europeans were here but we can make up for that habitat loss by planting habitat where um where we live so where we live and work you can plant habitat in your yard you can plant habitat on the margins of your agricultural fields 
you can plant habitat along rights of way and roadsides and, you know, under power lines and things like that. So we can add habitat, more habitat to the landscape um, just as we're taking it away. But we also need to be mindful in how we create that habitat, making sure that we're using native plants that native pollinators are expecting to see and making sure that we're doing it with um, pesticide-free plants. So sure. things that haven't been treated with neonicotinoids or um, things that don't need to be sprayed regularly for, uh, for pests and things like that. So just being responsible in our use of, of chemicals. At this point, it, it was sort of one of those points, the, the point that we always get to where we kind of have to ask the question, uh, why, why should people care? Convince everyone else why they should care about what you care about. I, we get this question all the time. It doesn't make yeah. me uncomfortable. Um, I actually really love this question. And honestly, I've, I don't think I've ever met somebody who had one of those monarch stories that didn't care. Everybody yeah. that I talk to, you know, and this is kind of a blanket statement, but a, a lot of the people that I talk to, a lot of the people that we interact with, they're interacting with us because they want to help monarchs. And sure. I know there's people out there that could care less about this tiny little insect, but I always turn the question back around. Why, why shouldn't you care? You know, yes. yep. <laughs> <laughs> for me, monarchs are, you know, if there's something that I can do to help monarch butterflies and then I don't do it, I know everything that we need to do to help monarch butterflies. But if I'm not going to do it, I don't think I could, I don't think I could live with myself knowing that there was something that I could do to help monarchs and that I didn't do it. And then this beautiful organism went extinct. Um, yeah. I also, you know, monarchs are also an indicator species. So mm -hmm. th because they're so recognizable, people, you know, it's one of the only insects in North America that everybody can name to its species. How many other insects can you say that about? Right. You know, um, yeah. it, they're so recognizable and still very common. And the fact that people are noticing, people who aren't ecologists or biologists, people who are just going about their everyday lives, you know, they're noticing that they're seeing fewer monarchs than they were when they were kids or than they yeah. saw with their kids as their kids were growing up. The fact that people are noticing that is a huge indicator that something is wrong with our ecosystems. There's something yeah. out of balance and that there's something we need to do to fix that. And by putting habitat out there, we're helping all of the other things that are also being affected by it. So if we're seeing that monarchs are affected by habitat loss, we're seeing a decrease in the monarch population. Just imagine all the things that we don't even know about yet that right. are being affected by this as well. We already know that native bees are in decline. We know that insects are in decline. There have been papers that have come out recently with huge alarming headlines yeah. saying that, you know, insects are in trouble. We know that there are huge declines in our in our native insect populations worldwide, mm -hmm. not just in North America. And monarchs are kind of the the I, I don't really want to say poster child of it, but that's kind <laughs> of the metaphor I want to go with, but you know, yeah. monarchs are the one thing that people recognize and, and can, you know, they have a story mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So for, for everyday people, you know, aside from uh, planting milkweed and, and, and things like that, if they want to get involved in the science of it, what is the, what's the best thing that they can do? Yeah. So obviously planting habitat is the biggest thing anybody can yeah. do and that's not just milkweed it's nectar plants as well and having a wide variety of nectar plants something blooming from the the first 
part of your growing season to the last part of your growing season. Sure. Here in the Midwest, that would be April, May through September. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing anybody can do is participate in a program like the Monarch Lover Monitoring Project, like the Integrated Monarch Monitoring Program. Journey North is another program. Project Monarch Health, Monarch Watch Tagging, or their Waystation program. Um, there are dozens of, well, not quite dozens. There are many different programs that people can get involved with depending on their geographic area and what they want to focus on. And sure. our website has those resources if they're interested in them. Um, it's just monarchjointventure.org. You can, you can find information on participating in Monarch Citizen Science. Um, but any of those programs have pieces that are, you know, focusing on various pieces of the monarch puzzle. You know, they're looking at either the adults, they're looking at the larvae, they're looking at the migration, and each one of those points of data that we get through those programs is yeah. adding another picture to the puzzle. Um, sure. So that we can get a better idea of how to help monarch butterflies. Getting that snapshot is super important in, in informing our conservation decisions. How, how is the population looking right now? Well, it depends on where you're at. The population sure. for Eastern monarchs, the monarchs that migrate to Mexico has not been released yet. Those numbers haven't been released yet. We're expecting them really any day now. Um, they don't have like a set day or week of the year where they release them. It's just kind of whenever they're ready. Um, I'm really hoping that I'll like wake up to an email tomorrow morning or something like that, that the numbers <laughs> have been released. But um, I will, I'll send those to you as soon as we have oh, them. Yeah, but, um, they yeah. come from World Wildlife Fund Mexico which is the organization that counts, that heads up the counting of the monarchs in Mexico. Sure. Um, the predictions for monarchs in Mexico based on information from the Monarch Lava Monitoring Project and other data points from last summer uh, is putting it about the same or even possibly slightly lower than they were last year. Uh, I think the, I think it was somewhere between four and five hectares of monarchs and Monarchs are measured by how much space they take up in Mexico, not by individuals, because there are still too many of them to count individually. Yeah, yeah, I was, um, <laughs> I've been kind of wondering that in the back of my mind this whole time. Like, well, how do you, how do you, yeah. how do they, how do they count? <laughs> I, well, I can answer that very quickly because I know we're running a little short on time. But in Mexico, they go around and kind of flag all of the trees that have monarchs mm-hmm. in them and then measure the area that those trees take up and that's the number that gets released they add oh. up all of those numbers from the different mountaintops that have monarchs on them that's why they're they're um in measured in hectares and not in individuals huh. okay <laughs> the um the western population however is estimated in individuals and they are doing very poorly right now their numbers were released a few weeks ago. Uh, the, the Xerces Society for the Conservation or for Invertebrate Conservation, um, they do a Thanksgiving count of monarchs every year. So they go around to all the overwintering sites in California. They have volunteers that go around to the overwintering sites in California, counting, estimating by individual all the monarchs that are there. And up until last winter, with the winter of um, 2018, 2019, those numbers were hovering right around the 100,000 to 300,000 mark, depending on the year. 
in 2018, 2019, it plummeted to about 30,000. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, and it wasn't much better this year, but it wasn't any worse which is something to hope for, you know, the, the population didn't go down, but it also didn't go up. So again, the same pressures that are affecting Eastern monarchs are affecting Western monarchs. It's loss of habitat, it's use of um, irresponsible use of pesticides and things like that. So um, the message is the same, get habitat in the ground, count monarchs when you see them, report them when you see them. And um tell everybody you know to do the same <laughs> okay that's good well what I, what I like and I think you actually kind of said this is that it does really seem to be I mean not only geographic area you know it seems to be that there's something kind of no matter where where you're at but um each, each part of the life cycle there really mm-hmm. seems to be an opportunity so like if you really want to focus on the caterpillars you can focus yep. on the caterpillars if you want to work with the adults you can work with the adults and there's no other insect that is monitored as closely as monarch butterflies. There is literally something, somebody somewhere looking at some aspect of monarch butterflies in every stage of its of its life cycle in any geographic area, which I think is pretty amazing. So many opportunities, so many great things that you can get involved with. If there's anything you heard about today on this episode where you're like, wow, that's something that I think that I could do. First off, you could do all of it. I, I promise you that you you could do all of it. Um, but you can learn more at the monarchjointventure.org. They've got a lot of great information, including about um, who their funders are and partners, um, uh, uh, ways that you can get involved, whether that's through donation or creation of habitat or studying the monarchs directly through their citizen science programs, different projects that you can get involved with, and tons and tons of helpful and educational resources. And before we go, I'd just like to thank our patrons, the people who support us with monthly contributions. Of course, they get things in return, like merchy and community benefits, but um, really they are the life force of what we do and, and perpetuating what we do and allowing us to be able to do hikes and and uh, uh, nature programs, educational programs, uh, running the blog, all of that stuff. Megan Gariani, Andrew Lloyd, Bridget Fitzgerald, Matt Capel, and Chris Trankel. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash thewildlife. Thanks for listening.